This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. Double tap, or in some cases, just tap to like. Those little filled in hearts and thumbs up used to be the currency of marketing campaigns. How many did you get? Then bots disrupted and the market for selling likes got out of control. Brands started wising up to the super high customer acquisition costs they were seeing in their marketing reports, and they wanted to trim the fat to know more about who was seeing what and for what reason. Passionate about intricate marketing details like these is Dave Fink, the CEO and founder of Posty. He's seen a lot of change in the social media marketing landscape in his times on the scene. Because we were starting from an authentic place, which was this essentially need for more control over our growth beyond the behemoths that are social and search and watching those channels take more and more power and markers lose more and more power over kind of their growth trajectory, but not wanting to get to acquiesce and give up all of the technology and tools and data and measurement and predictability that comes from those channels. The realization that social media marketing on Facebook was extremely volatile and based solely on large corporate algorithm decisions made by the tech giants, sobered Dave into action to move away from relying on paid social media and into the physical mail sector. On Marketing Trends, hear more about how Dave built Posty into one of the most data-driven marketing platforms and how companies within the Fortune 500 are using Posty to level up its customer experience. All this next on Marketing Trends. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Content Strategy at Mission.org. Today on the show, we've got a legend, the man, the myth, Dave Fink, CEO and co-founder of Posty, 
which we're going to talk about today. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Very generous intro. Dude, are you kidding me? First of all, I Googled your name and the first thing that popped up was some handball pro. Do you know that? Like you, there's a famous Dave Fink that plays handball is like number one ranked handball player. Did you know that? I had no idea, but clearly that's the legendary Dave Fink. And <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I just knew that like when I started, you know, because look, the first thing I do is when I get someone's name that's coming on the show, I'll spend some time. I want to dig, you know, and find some information. And so Dave Fink, David Fink, I'm like, dude, this guy plays handball. And he has a fast growing direct mail response automation company. This guy's super dope. <laughs> no, that, no, 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 that's actually, uh, that is not me. I, I'm not the professional <laughs> handball player. To be clear, okay. I feel like I can't steal someone else's thunder, but I did recently help uh, co-found our uh, cul-de-sac paddleball uh, league, which, hey. which so far is four members deep, and okay. we're having a lot of fun on Saturday evenings. There's a connection, you see. Also, are you in LA? Where are you located? I was in LA for about 20 years and okay. uh, took the um, kind of pandemic challenge of, of trying a new city out. So for uh, actually exactly a year, my family and I have been in Austin, Texas. Oh, you're in Austin? We are. Yeah. Man, I wish we would have known that because your LinkedIn says LA. We could have had you come to the studio. We're probably like five minutes from each other right now. Didn't even know it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, we'll, we will definitely have to spend time in person. Yes, dude, def definitely. That's awesome, man. So how long have you been in Austin? A, a year, almost exactly a year. A year. Man, welcome to Austin. That's amazing, man. The, I mean, I didn't know you were here and that's that makes this conversation even more dope. So thank you, man. That's cool. Yeah, for sure. Dude, okay. So let's start. Let's give some context, man. You know, the kind of the theme of the show is that we want to understand who the person is, like who is the guy behind the title and the business and so where they kind of come from. And so we want to get some context for our listeners, who were other CMOs and leaders, you know, around the global 2000. And then we also want to talk about interesting things. I mean, your background's so storied, man. I want to talk about, you know, Dollar Shave Club and I want to talk about the industry at large. But let's start with just the genesis for you. Like when did marketing become this itch that you had to scratch? Was it a campaign? Was it a brand? What kind of first got your attention where marketing became really interesting to you? Yeah. So for me, it was a little bit accidental and I think more of an intellectual pursuit a little bit from the outside. So I've been in, in the consumer internet space, gosh, um, 22, 23 years now and started as a bright eyed, very, very green, um, fresh out of college kid in sales for a tech company based in Chicago that, that sold kind of web 1.0, um, you know, marketing technology and services. And we sold into a, into a super broad set of advertisers ranging from, you know, fortune 50 companies, but we also sold into kind of this emerging, you know, breed of digital entrepreneurial um, consumer brands, you know, within a handful of conversations where I had the opportunity to, to sit down with with founders and CEOs that you know maybe they start out with you know five ten people in you know a small room on a couple of card tables, and um, you know they had some crazy idea and and had an opportunity to to learn a little bit about that and help them you know find ways to to grow the customer base and they'd come back six months later and there'd be fifty people in a slightly nicer office and and they were doing their thing and I'd come back and visit them six months later. And it'd be 250 people in, you know, two floors of a, of a tower somewhere. And that to me was, was extraordinary. Um, and, and in each of those cases, you know, those, those businesses grew with, 
you know, a hardcore focus on, on leveraging kind of the expansion of digital and quant marketing that the internet provided that, that wasn't really available, you know, prior to the you know, early 2000s. And so for me, that seeing, um, you know, companies go from an idea to, you know, difference makers, uh, it really just blew my mind. I needed to be a part of it. What were some of those brands, like some of those brands that were in the early days of like, okay, there's innovation happening, there's growth obviously happening, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it, it, certainly the list goes on and on. You know, we all know the the more modern day kind of versions of those. And I had, you know, the benefit of, you know, learning from great entrepreneurs like Mike Dubin, um, you know, uh, during, you know, the Dollar Shave Club era and Casper Mattresses and Warby Parker and stuff, et cetera. But if you kind of, you know, rewind 20 years, um, you know, way before, you know, Silicon Valley investors were, um, you know, excited about quant, you know, direct response, performance, measurable marketing, uh, there were there were companies that had, you know, kind of the idea of selling products direct to consumer and leveraging really a data test and optimization approach to marketing. And so those businesses were ranged from Consumer Info, which was a credit um, monitoring service that Experian ended up you know, acquiring for you know several hundred million dollars back when that was probably a wow. to a ten billion dollar exit these days. Right, look, companies you know Matt Coffin um, started a company called Lower My Bills. There were entrepreneurs like uh, Adam Goldenberg and Dodd Resler that that started um, you know uh, direct consumer beauty brands that you know emerged into companies that are now known as as Fabletics and Savage X Vente. So mm-hmm. those Web 1.0 brands um, uh, were really kind of the first um, brands that introduced me to the idea that you could start a company, you could reach consumers directly, and you could leverage um, a data driven approach to to grow much faster than uh, than ever before. Well, you. You mentioned, I mean, some exceptional brands in that, you know, Casper and Warby Parker and Dollar Shave Club. I mean, and then if people, you know, see those brands or have experienced those brands and, you know, capital G growth followed those brands. And so, of course, a notable one is Dollar Shave Club. You brought it up. Let's go there. You know, you've been a guy that's really kind of identified as kind of the brains behind that huge hit. So let's talk about your experience kind of from the outside looking in at Dollar Shave Club. Then when you joined that team, tell us kind of some of the things that happened and the things you saw and, you know, give us kind of that inside take. Yeah, sure. And just to, you know, to be clear, I mean, you know, Dollar Shave Club was, um, you know, from, from day one was a vision of, of Mike Dubin's. You know, he showed up to, uh, to a company um, called Science that I was one of the founding partners of and pitched us this idea of a direct-to-consumer um, you know, men's grooming company that um, that really went at the monopoly that that was Gillette and a, a reasonable pain point, right? Yeah, we've all had the experience of of checking out at at Target or, or Walmart, and and we have you know there are five items in our cart and it's you know 120 bucks, and we're like, what in the world did we just buy? And and a big chunk of that was was razors. And so, you know, the experience for, for, for me, it did really, um, you know, getting to work, well, invest in very early on and watch Mike Dubin kind of bring this large and like brand to life. For me, it was the first time that I'd seen, you know, had a front row seat and, and quite frankly, one of the first times that I think it had been done where the blend of, of brand marketing and storytelling met hardcore quantitative measurable performance marketing in a way that allowed that business to go from zero to you know, several hundred million dollars in just a few years. You know, when we talk about some of the, the when we talked about some of the, the brands early in my career, a lot of those brands um, were 
over-focused on the quantitative part of, of marketing, testing and optimizing your messaging and, and your landing pages and your email creative, et cetera, all the tactical components that help um, drive efficiency, but they were missing kind of the heart and soul of a, direct, of a disruptive story and, and really kind of bringing a brand story to life. And that was the beauty to me of, of, of Dollar Shave Club, where you know Mike Dubin had this idea of going after this category. He, he was just a, a brilliant storyteller. And very early on, I, we were able to rally around him, help him understand that he, he needed a control growth you know, mechanism as well. And, and so by onboarding you know, Adam Weber, who was a CMO and had experience both on the brand side and the quant side, you know, that business and that concept and idea took off um, and, and you know, kind of grew a life of its own. So you, you join them kind of advising, consulting? So, so science um, it has evolved throughout the years and it's been a number of years since I was involved and I can't speak exactly to, to what it is today. But um, in, in the, the, the first you know, five, six years, we were um, a tech studio and incubator. Cool. So um, we provided early stage funding, but also um, a network of experts, tools, technologies to help brands go from an idea to... Um, to you know, uh, product market fit and then and then beyond. And that range from helping them raise external capital, uh, working on actually building technology platforms, helping them hire executive teams and beyond, uh, and then just overall marketing strategy. That's cool. So having you know gone through that experience, and of course, I mean, look, 20 plus years in this business and you know, omni-channel, all kinds of exposure for you. You know, what are some of these things that you're taking with you to Posty? and activating uh, at Posty, right? Because uh, we'll talk about the stage you're at now as a company, but like, I mean, you've seen some amazing things. You you have this kind of right brain, left brain ability where you've, you can definitely be the visionary, but also be the, the you know, the executioner. And I think it's it's interesting to have that. So yeah, I guess it's just an, it's, it's an, a super interesting perspective. And so how do you take all that? And what do you immediately know is going to work at Posty and is working at Posty from your experiences at Dollar Shave Club and some of these other amazing brands? So that's a loaded question because I, I don't think um, I could, uh, you know, look you in the eyes and honestly say like I knew anything was definitively going to work. Um, however, I've talked about this, you know, with with our team at Nauseam, and I think it's it's really a core, you know, mantra at Posty. And there are two types of startups that that I've witnessed. Um, yeah, you know, there are lots of different ways you can segment them, but but to me, one big bucket is the startups that uh, or businesses that are created more opportunistically. There's a revenue model. Um, there's some expertise in the founding team. They know they could build a business around a specific concept and business model. And the other businesses are a bit more you know, mission-driven. That doesn't mean that they're all out trying to you know, solve the homeless you know, problem or the global pandemic, but they, they are out recognizing that there's a problem in a marketing industry, a vertical that you know, could use solving. And for us, that, that's where Posty started. And so I did believe that because we were starting from an authentic place, which was this essentially need for um, more control over, over our growth beyond the behemoths that are social and search and watching those channels take more and more power um, and marketers lose more and more power over kind of their growth trajectory but not wanting to get to acquiesce and give up all of the technology and tools and data and measurement and predictability that comes from those channels. And we just looked and said, hey, we, we got to start help, you know, start cracking other channels that can be run as controlled, as quantitatively, as test and optimization, as allowed for in these, in these other digital channels. 
that's been our mission from day one. And there was a, a, a tremendous you know, kind of market fit from day one. And, and it was on us to just build the technology and, and workflows to, to bring it to life. So in the, in the industry of, you know, direct mail automation, were you an early player in that space? Because I know there's a lot of competitors in that space now at different levels, it, it seems. I'm not a, at all an expert in that world, but where were you in the history of when that started? Were you a first mover in the direct automation Direct mail automation game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, cool. I think we're we're a little bit lucky in that it, it isn't as competitive of a market as as many of the others. When you look at you know, the history of email market, email automation marketing, and SMS, and um, you know, programmatic display, like those channels, you know, just bred innovation. They've sure. bred you know startups, and there were you know at, at one point, if you look at some of those. Um, you know, infographics, hundreds of competitors in the direct mail automation space. Probably less than 20, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And most of them are long tail. They cater to a different clientele than, than we cater to. There, there's about a handful that, I, that, that we think about or, or, or competitively sell against, uh, arguably two or three of them with um, a ton of, of might. And, and to be quite honest, we were aware of that from the start. So there, there really wasn't anyone that was building uh, robust marketing, um, you know, software and technology to, to innovate in the direct mail channel. There was this long sea of hundreds and hundreds of, of long tail ways to execute direct mail. There are printers and their data providers, and there were brokers and agents. But unlike some of the digital channels where uh, there were kind of these kind of centralized platforms that um, that provided you know constant innovation and turnkey capabilities that that just didn't exist at the, um, six years ago when we set out to to start building for for posty so e- even now I think the industry's I, I look at it as very very nascent mm-hmm. I think we're doing some pretty extraordinary things but you know we'd love to see more innovation we'd love to be pushed by competition and um, even though this is a you know, arguably a 40 billion dollar uh, a year space just here in the US, it's still um, the, the vast majority of, of those ad dollars are flowing through traditional executional partners. I guess it's a, I assume to know that, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm assuming that direct mail is a big portion of your marketing mix at Posty. I mean, it's probably maybe big, maybe bigger than mo- other brands at, at your level, I would I would think maybe. It is, but look, we're not a, a one-trick pony in our growth efforts right. any more than any other brand. And we certainly wouldn't be out there encouraging brands not to spend in social and search and programmatic sure. out of home. We definitively have seen, you know, with thousands of, of clients, hundreds of thousands of campaigns, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of pieces of mail deployed that, that direct mail is, is a huge, can be a huge component um, when invested in. This is something I always wanted to know from a direct mail automation side, because you guys now have access to thousands of campaigns and offers. And you're able to see, you know, you're tracking this measured results on that stuff. So like with that kind of data and business intelligence, I guess there's a lot of, a lot we could talk about there, but are you helping brands with that stuff? Are you looking at that yourself to see what's doing, maybe being surprised by certain things? I'm curious to know just from just the campaign info that you see from your perspective in this really, really cool industry. What's that like? What are you doing with that data? Is it helping? Are we a long ways away from you using that data in more creative ways? All the above. Yeah, no, I love that question. And certainly we could talk about that for, for hours. I could loop in all our product teams and we could geek out on that and, and we should do that someday here in Austin. But uh, for the sake of brevity, we think about um, data and insights uh, probably in, in two different buckets. So the first bucket is you know, 
direct mail is, is a channel that can leverage big data, both first party data and third party data for all sorts of miraculous things, predictive modeling and auto optimization, same kind of uh, characteristics that social has, programmatic has, et cetera. So you get better um, with bigger data and you get better with testing and, and, and insights. And so you know, a core focus of Posty is, is, is big data and then machine learning on top of that. And so probably that the biggest product focus that, that we spend our time on is thinking about how to give all advertisers access to the same data and mathematical advantage that they get from other channels. So, you know, certainly every campaign that deploys, um, you know, leaves all sorts of interesting um, data behind. That data is all done in a very, in a very automated fashion, training algorithms, making each algorithm better. And then, and, you know, the next you know, campaign that deploys gets a little bit smarter. That's, you know, we, we've been doing that for years. We'll continue to do that. That happens. Um, that's not so much of a test and, and, or a hypothesis and optimized um, approach. That's, you know, good mathematics kind of doing its thing, and that'll continue to, to provide benefit network-wide. But then there's the, the more human side of, of testing and optimizing what creative, what ad formats, what frequency, right. what specific data sets or data providers. Think about um, uh, you know, tapping into first-party data to train you know, lookalikes and and all those strategies and tactics we're learning day in, day out. Mm-hmm. We're learning with our own services layer. We're learning by looking at the results of thousands and thousands of campaigns on a weekly basis. And we're learning because we're our teams are engaging with the smartest marketers in the entire you know, history of the world who are bringing their own ideas into weekly strategy calls. Right. So all that, that kind of um, institutional knowledge that just gets acquired and accumulated and synthesized you know, day in, day out. Um, we're working really hard internally behind the scenes to educate all of our team members who engage with clients to be able to, to um, you know, kind of push and, and, and help um, accelerate, um, you know, the next client to jump on the Posty platform's ability to, to optimize this channel quickly with, with the least amount of, of you know, budget risk. So that is an element. So let's just, you know, let's say our organization wants to work with Posty. We see there's some value there and there's an opportunity. Will you actually not only help us with the, the automation, of course, but will you help us with the creative and the offer and like helping us like taking that kind of off our plate as well? Or do we still need to go find copywriters and direct response folks to layer on top of the automation? It's up to you. We're certainly a, a technology platform first, um, but we do recognize that there's certain nuance and expertise um, to develop good creative in you know, each um, yeah. you know, channel. And, and so we do have a team of copywriters and and art directors that I would say a very um, small minority of, of Posty um, clients will leverage. Sometimes it's to get really out of the gate. Yeah, it, we've just that's it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's not been um, it's not been by choice. Um, it, it it just um, brands care a lot these days about their about owning their own messaging. So the more times than not, they'll want to meet with their accounts team to get best practices. And, and we have a tremendous amount of knowledge that we can share there, but they want to own, um, yeah, they want to own their own storytelling. That's interesting. So let's talk about, you know, kind of target folks for you. Um, it sounds like it's kind of, you're in the enterprise, you know, probably fortune 100 range, but I'm just curious, like, tell me about your customer, your kind of ideal person that you're really supporting. We, do, I think, do a pretty good job of of thinking about, um, you know, uh, a, kind of a, a four segment quadrant um, of of customers and the the X and Y axes that we that we think about at the highest level are are is it a, a an emerging brand 
or is it an enterprise brand? And and we don't differentiate by size. So it, you know, it, it's more it's almost more about you know, is this a business that came about in in a build out era of, of digital, or is it a brand that's been around for decades? And so when we think about monster companies like Airbnb and sure and Uber and Lyft, th- those are still emerging brands and and innovators and disruptors. Um, you know, and then there's the, certainly the Fortune 500, 150 set that, that almost, you know, always kind of falls in that, that enterprise. Sure. And we service both sides of that. There are the, you know, really dynamic disruptors that, you know, kind of ready, fire, aim. And as long as they can collect data and learn along the way, they want to go as fast as possible. And then there are the enterprise brands that typically there are lots of stakeholders and, and it's longer um, planning cycles and whatnot. And then the other axis is... Are, is this a brand that's currently invested in, in direct mail as, as a core channel, or is this a brand on the complete opposite of the spectrum that's maybe never you know, touched direct mail before? And we service both of those. And they, they live both on the enterprise and on the emerging brand side. So depending on kind of what quadrant you know, a prospect or a client falls in will determine kind of you know, how we engage with them and what the education process looks like and how we think about um, their trajectory in the direct mail channel. Hmm. Within those emerging brands and those enterprise brands, is it a pretty healthy mix of B2B brands and B2C brands? Or is it are you more skewed towards B2C because of your background in that world? Yeah, so, so we're definitely way more um, indexed in, in consumer brands. And I think that's probably twofold. One, certainly the reason that you just mentioned it's a space that kind of falls you know, right smack square in the middle of our DNA and was very comfortable for us to initially you know, target. But the other reason is that when you're, you're leveraging you know, um, big data to, to help you with um, optimization, decision-making, segmentation, prediction, et cetera, the data sets available in, in, consumer, in the consumer world are much broader. You're talking about millions and millions of features that can be used to, to train algorithms and, and, and provide advantage to advertisers. In the B2B world, the, the the number of attributes and features are much smaller. And so the same level of sophistication and map that can be applied to consumer um, data sets just don't exist um, or, or are, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't make sense in, in B2B data sets. So we definitely have clients that are in the B2B world. We can provide lots of efficiency, but the data sets themselves are a little bit more limiting. And so for that reason, I think we just skew more heavily to consumer brands. Hmm. Interesting, man. That's that's great. I yeah, the, the direct mail piece is something that I've I've personally seen work really well um, with some brands that I've worked inside of and also just been a, a consumer of. And so, and then I also think this is this huge ocean of brands. I think I love the kind of definition you said: emerging brands and then enterprise. Like, there's so many of them that are not even playing. They're not playing in this space. I know that I talk to these Fortune 500 CMOS all the time and CEOs, and they're not even a lot of them aren't even thinking about this right now. And, and, and then I hear some founded as a huge channel. For example, we had the CEO of Artsy, or I'm sorry, the VP of marketing of Artsy on, Everett Taylor, an amazing guy who said that they kind of stumbled upon direct mail being a really awesome channel for them. And they've then doubled down. But that still surprised me now in 2021, still so many brands are hesitant to go down that path. Is that what you're finding? Um, I wouldn't say hesitant. I would say there's uh, a lot of headspace for the brand world in general to engage in this channel. It's certainly evolved um, over the last you know, six years that kind of we've been in market where I think in the early days, uh, more brands were just dipping, at least emerging brands were just dipping their feet in the water and more enterprise brands were you know, on that kind of 
multi-year journey of how do we migrate from traditional media channels that are not measurable, that are not predictable right. into digital. And, and then, you know, really, again, the impetus for our business was that with brands ranging from Dollar Shave Club um, on down um, that, that we engaged with, the, the pain point was, was, was there, which is that Facebook's an unbelievable platform, sophisticated, um, you know, set of technologies we had never seen before in marketing, but really has, you know, a ton of power. And when an algorithm change takes effect, performance and the trajectory of our business for the entire year um, change. And so what we saw early on, uh, I, I would, I mean, there was almost no objection to the concept of using direct mail and using you know, technology that mirrored digital execution for direct mail. The, the thing we heard over and over again from the biggest fortune, you know, 100 companies all the way down to 10, 15, 20 million dollar year DTC brands. Well, yeah, like we are way over indexed in Facebook as our primary growth channel is a singular fail point. You build it. We will test it. If it works, we'll scale. And that trajectory has, has proven to be the case. I, I think what we're seeing in the enterprise world is there are organizations that 20 years ago were built with DM was the one core quant channel that they leveraged. And over time, that budget disappeared. The experts in the organizations um, you know, transitioned into digital channels or migrated out of their organization. And now they're in a world where they're like, you're looking at historic P&Ls and they're like, yeah, direct mail was a really top performing channel for us. Now Facebook is, is great, but we're, we're tapped out. Wow. We can't go any bigger. And they don't know how to get back into direct mail or they're, they certainly don't know how to leverage direct mail at the level of scale that they're leveraging social and, and programmatic channels. And that's, you know, that's kind of what, you know, modern technologies like Posty, I think can offer up. And, and honestly, I've been probably pleasantly surprised. It's just, how open the widest range of brands and advertisers are to, to experimenting with the channel again. Mm. So, you know, for those marketing leaders that are not in this space, maybe they're considering it. Like a lot of companies we talk to now are already planning for 2022. And so for those CMOs, you know, let's talk about kind of the mailbox being the new inbox, right? And so I want to kind of get your perspective on that. And what can you share with other marketing leaders who, who should consider this uh, as a, as an opportunity in the next year, because boy, oh boy, it seems like it's, it's a really big one. Yeah. It, I mean, it certainly is, um, you know, a couple of little, little tidbits, um, for, for those you're listening who may have not yet committed to, to explain this, you know, this channel, we, you know, kind of teasingly say, you know, it's 20, 20% bigger than social and search. Um, and that's because, you know, every single household in, in the U S is, is reachable. If there's a mailbox, you can reach them through direct mail. You don't have to wait for them to engage. Okay. Okay. Hold on. I mean, I want to make sure we, everybody listen to what he just said that, you know, this space is bigger than Google, bigger than Facebook. It is a fact. It's also an addressable channel. So you've worked so hard as a brand to take control of your first party data, understand your different consumer personas, understand the right messaging and frequency and communication that they respond to. And you need other channels that um, can amplify that message and work symbiotically with the, the channels that you're existed, you're currently engaged with, and DM, you know, is is fully addressable. Um, it is not a spray and pray channel. It's a it's a razor data driven focused channel. You know, with all that being said, at it, at its core, I, I think it's most important to not think about direct mail as you know. Just think about direct mail as as a very specific individualized channel. It's a part of your marketing mix, 
And the, those advertisers that I see taking advantage of it um, with the best performance, with the most scale, most control are those that start with not thinking about just how do we make direct mail work, but who is our customer base? What are our core marketing objectives? And then thinking about a holistic plan for, um, for attacking those, those goals and affecting you know, um, you know, the achievement of those goals positively. And then looking at how each channel can play a role in the achievement of those goals, you know, certainly DM can be, um, you know, direct mail can be a, a phenomenal, you know, highly performant, highly scalable component. But it, it all starts with, with marketers understanding and being honest with themselves around what they're looking to achieve, um, both in the short term and the long term. Mm. Are you finding what's the, if you could, I don't, you know, the percentage split of like uh, companies that end up working with you is the percentage of them that are new to direct mail maybe direct mail in general, maybe direct mail automation in general versus companies that have already been here and using this effectively in the States, in the Fortune 500? In the Fortune 500s, almost everyone we engage with is doing, is leveraging direct mail in some capacity. It may be a legacy program that's kind of on autopilot, has been on autopilot for, could be decades in some cases. Others uh, have a singular use case for it, but aren't thinking about it holistically as part of their marketing quiver. They're thinking about it as you know, direct mail is over here. It operates differently. You know, they think about it as you know, uh, as something you buy. You know, the procurement team, you know, is, is oftentimes running direct mail, whereas over here you have all these client marketers running this, um, you know, omni-channel, programmatic, um, data-driven approach. And you know, our mission is always helping kind of um, re. Uh, establish the the ground rules around how to think about direct mail and that it, it it needs to be run in tandem with all of your other quantitative channels. But very to you know to answer your question again directly, it's pretty rare that we would engage with a Fortune 500 who's not leveraging direct mail in some capacity. They're just they're minimizing it usually, not maximizing the potential. There's a part of the prep doc that I got before this interview that there was a question on there that I really was like, man, this is like a Yoda question because it was like, Dave can talk about how to win in the increasingly cutthroat digital marketing game that we're all in by not playing. It was <laughs> like, you must not play. Don't play, don't even play the game. So that was kind of the matrix Yoda moment for me. I'm like, okay, Dave, tell us about this. Tell us how to win truly in a very, you know, cutthroat digital marketing game that's ever evolving and changing by not playing? Well, you know, for those of us who've been around for a while and, and lived through you know, the many changes in, in social, you know, let, let's take a, a walk down memory lane. So remember <laughs> the days when Facebook advertising was all about um, building your fan page and buying likes, right? That, that wasn't that many years ago, eight years, 10 years ago, right? And, you know, at that time, I, I was involved in many brands that, that had seven, you know, in some cases, eight-figure budgets, annual budgets, um, and that we're building monstrous fan pages and investing in even bigger budgets of in-house content creators to, to engage those, those fans through storytelling. And that was amazing and beautiful. And then do we all remember that, that time that um, Facebook decided, hey, guess what? Like, we appreciate you built this community and we appreciate that, um, that you've invested in all these fans, but now if you want to actually reach these fans, we're going to charge you. You have to pay to promote your own content to the fans that you already paid to acquire and, and build into the Facebook community. That was like, like kind of warning signs, you know, fire, right? And, and look, it's, uh, Facebook's an, an amazing company and, and, and they're a brilliant company and they've built, you know, 
you know, they have lasting power that we've never seen before. But with that being said, that's a really precarious position to be in as a marketer, right? You build an entire media plan, you invest, you execute, you hire experts. And then a year and a half later, you're told all that investment, you know, basically was for naught. And now you have to start learning how to, you know, how to, you know, allocate even bigger budgets to reach these individuals. So, you know, that, that scared the heck out of me and it scared the heck out of, I think, a lot of advertisers where we started realizing that the more power we put in the hands of, you know, um, select few, you know, the, there's advantage. It's easy to buy, you know, lots of media on Facebook and to do so super efficiently, but at some point there's a ceiling. And so I think the idea is like, look, I think the Yoda moment, um, the reality is not necessarily going to get away from digital at this point. Like that just isn't happening. And and I don't want to imply that it is. But when you think about, you know, 80% of your media budget, and and right now I've heard um, some crazy stats. So so two stats that that stuck with me. One is that 85 cents in every dollar of digital ad ad spend is going into the pockets of Facebook and Google. Wow. Yeah. 85 cents on every dollar spent in digital is going to to two companies. And the other, um, and I don't know if it's a little bit dated or not, but I had heard that 40% of every venture dollar indirectly flows into Facebook, meaning that you're a company, you raise $100 million, chances are you're going to spend $40 million of that uh, in, in Facebook ads. And we've seen ad rates increase, and we've seen ad rates increase during certain you know, peak seasons. That's marketplace dynamics. There are other channels, direct mail being one of them, where there's economies of scale, the way that advertising used to be. And in the olden days, right, we used to buy TV and upfront, the bigger your budget commitment was, the more efficient um, the costs become. DDM can, is still bought that way, right? So the bigger the campaigns are, the bigger the commitments, there's, there's operation and logistics um, and manufacturing efficiency. And so the more you spend, um, the, the more uh, cost-effective the channel can become. Then you layer on all of the same big data, the ability to connect your first party data um, with third party data sets to build predictive models, to have real time attribution measurement, to be able to get campaigns out the door instantaneously. You know, those, those capabilities now all of a sudden start shaping the way we think about DM differently than we used to. And so as we make a bigger investment in this channel, we can start taking more control because the ad rates aren't going to change. If they are going to change, they're more likely going to go down throughout um, as we scale. Whereas Facebook ad rates may go up, and as you're playing an omni-channel game, you can win by media mix. And again, not by jumping off the of social, jumping out of search, jumping out of programmatic, but by reallocating your budget um, into into channels that you have more control over, and just creating a a more um, controlled blend. Hmm. So, man, so it's like you're dropping so many bombs on people, dude. I know this is going to be so interesting for folks to go back because they're, you know, again, 20 plus years, you know, in the space of all these ebbs and flows. And now we're in this cookie list world. And what do you do about cookie list world? And it's like, I think also the theme of kind of what you're saying is, you know, as a marketer and involved in this game, it's like part of the ride is the twists and turns and the, and the way we have to evolve and engage. And at the end of the day, how we're engaging with, the most important person, the customer, the user is, is still foundational. And so I love it, man. I, I'm curious, kind of, I always love talking to marketers who become CEOs because I think that CEOs, of course, have a different perspective and so do marketing leaders. And so kind of being a guy who certainly has the marketing chops and now also CEO of a business, 
um, that's growing and not slowing down. How has that been for you now? You know, because it seems like you you kind of got to let some things go as the CEO. You're probably still involved in some of the things that you know you want to play in. What's that like, though, kind of merging those two roles for you at this stage of Posty? I love that question. There are a couple of things I want to touch on. So, so first of all, marketing is a really challenging job. And even if you look at, at the data, I, I don't know the, the specifics, but on how frequently marketers change jobs, I think that's probably highly you know, resultant on stress levels, the, just the rapid evolution of the marketing industry and, and who's staying on top of, of um, kind of those, those changes and trends and technologies. Is it, I think a CEO and the CEO of a marketing technology company, empathy is, is absolutely critical. And I think that's something that maybe we don't understand when we get, you know, kind of trapped in our, you know, day-to-day executional role. You know, we all have, have bosses, CEOs have investors that are, you know, and, and board members that are bosses. And everybody has a tremendous amount of stress and that stress tends to roll downhill. And I think the number one thing that um, I think that we all as professionals can do, especially in this crazy, you know, rapidly evolving, you know, marketing sector is just have a ton of empathy for, for um, the day-to-day challenges and even long-term challenges of, of marketers. And so for us, that's I, it's something that I want to impose, you know, day in, day out to our sales team, to our services team, um, to our product and, and data science teams that, that, you know, we're dealing with individuals who have a, a tremendous amount of stress and a tremendous amount of responsibility and pressure on them. And if we keep that in mind, uh, you know, that goes a long way in, in our partnership. The other thing that, that I've learned is that you can grab more control by letting go of control. So I love that you use that Yoda reference earlier. Our, you know, Shelly, who runs our, our client successes um, department and is awesome um, and has been in the services world for a really long time. I, I said something in, in passing a few weeks ago in a team, team meeting and, and she made us all take pause, which I thought um, was really pithy of her. But what I what I said is, you know, there was a time when I was involved with every client and every campaign and every piece of product roadmap and every piece of technology. And those days, you know, we're a big enough company that that doesn't exist anymore. Like that, that's not my my paradigm anymore. I you know very rarely get the pleasure of in, engaging directly with clients during the sales cycle or even um, you know while they're engaged with with our teams. We have lots of layers of management and lots of professionals that um, that know the day the ins and outs of of each of our clients' businesses. And so what what it's had to force me to do is to to, to let go of control of every aspect of, of a business where it started with you know, my co-founder, Jonathan, and, and, and my you know, frustration and pain point in digital. And, and it was just he and I writing some code and coming up with some wireframes, like every good business. And then you, know, you look today and, and I feel more in control of the trajectory of this business than ever before because we have unbelievable executive team. We have unbelievable management, mid-management layers and executional roles. I think that's the reality in, in every company, every team. And, and, um, and so I think, you know, I, I hope those, that answer your question, but those are two things that are very, I think, pressing in, in my mind um, in, in modern times. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, it also seems like you're a guy that I would want to know, you know, how growth impacts you or, or maybe a better, a better way to say it is just maybe not growing fast enough, right? Because a guy like you, 
has seen and been a part of brands that have exploded. And then also in a company that's growing and exploding. But also like if you compare all these things you've done and like, do you ever get kind of caught in like, man, we're not moving like we could. Is that just, you know, because I feel like a guy like you, like you've seen this amazing stuff and you know, high level, low level, what it takes to execute and achieve great results. And you've seen the elements and the ingredients of things that take brands to higher, to high, the highest heights and to categories that most brands will never see depending on the industry. What's that like? Because are you just like, always like, man, we can go faster. We can, why aren't we growing? Like, I know we can, or is it a different paradigm for you? I think everybody that knows me right now is like rolling on the ground laughing. (laughs) It's torturous. (laughs) It is, um, man, you know, that it is brutal and, and it's, it's minute to minute. It's hour to hour. It's day to day. You know, I, I think, one of the things you learn tremendously being in any startup, but certainly being a CEO is, is context switching and you have to be able to on a dime switch from product to management, to hiring, to marketing, to sales, to find services, et cetera. And there are moments of, I'm not exaggerating even a little bit. There are moments of every day. I just think we can't fail. We're, we're like, I mean, we are, we're authentic. We're, we really care about the, about our company's mission. We love the clients that we're engaging with. We you know, thrive when clients see success in this channel and with, with our technology. And then there, there are other moments of that, of that very same day, every single day where this guy's falling and, and we'll never amount to anything and everything, you know, we do must be wrong and someone's doing it faster and better than us. And, and why would anybody, you know, listen to what we say? Um, and the reality is the truth is 100% always somewhere in the middle. You're never as good as you think. You're never as bad as you think. And the good of that is I think it just constantly forces us to innovate again, carry that compassion and empathy for our client set, for our employees, for our, le- our, our, you know, our company leaders, our investors. But yeah, man, that, holy cow. Um, I mean, that, that is the, the, I think I always wonder if every, you know, entrepreneur and CEO is feeling that same, you know, dysthymic pain that, that, and, and elation that, that, that I feel, Cause it, it's real. It is so, it is so real. Man, that's, yeah. I mean, you, you look, you know, it like any other, you know, entrepreneur, CEO that's building a business, you know, it, it, I say this uh, a lot from a mentor of mine, you know, it's a full contact sport, right? It's a full contact sport. And the things that need to happen inside of a business that needs to go from the high six figures to the low seven and the low to the mid sevens and the mid to the eights and the nine figure, the things that happen inside of an organization are I mean, there's to your point there, it's, it's a, it's a literal roller coaster, right? And I think the way that infrastructure is set up, the way that operations are set up, delivery, marketing, I mean, there's so many finance, there's so many things that happen and it changes, you know, it's like, it seems like at any moment you can be paying attention to one thing that could also take you down a rabbit hole for the next week or month or year. If you, if you want it, there's so many things. So I get it. And I just want to say, man, you know, this has been exceptional. I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. And I know that our listeners, that are, are the CMOs, the VPs of marketing, director of marketing, like across the executive leadership team, they will love this episode. And so thank you for taking time today. Man, a huge congratulations to, to what you're doing at Posty, to the whole team there. I'm really honored you took the time today, Dave. So thank you for being on the show. Uh, it was my pleasure. I, I enjoyed it too. And, and 
you and your hookers are incredibly professional. And I, I yeah, I, did, I love it. I, I love this conversation. Thank you. Okay, let's jump into our lightning round. So Marketing Trends Podcast, if you didn't know, now you know, was brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Hot seat in the house. We have Dave Fink, co-founder and CEO of Posty, direct mail automation legend beyond direct mail, but that's what his business is. First question, Dave, what's the best piece of mail you've received? A birthday card, of course. <laughs> A birthday card. Okay. Okay. Next question. A little more intense. This comes from our producer, Aaron. Your Twitter bio says you're a Chicago sports fan. Who wins the championship first, the Bears or the Cubs? Well, I have lived through one of each, uh, which, you know, sadly, it's only been one of each. I think the, the data suggests the Cubs will. Okay, okay. But I'm a football and diehard Bears fan, and that saddens me to say, but I, I think there are some, some changes that need to be made to get that Super Bowl ring. Okay, okay, fair game. Better college town, Madison or Boulder? Oh, brutal. Yeah, the great question. Man, I, I spent two years at each. I regret not having had four each because they, they really are <laughs> phenomenal. I guess there's no reason I couldn't get another two at each. Um, <laughs> but um, look, I, I'm going to go Boulder at this point, not because of the college town itself, even though it's awesome, but because of the mountains and I like rock climbing and I like snowboarding and, and Wisconsin's amazing. And you can do, uh, you have all the lake life, wake surfing. Um, but, um, but the mountains tick towards Boulder because of the mountains. I love it, man. That's well, I'm going to sway that way too, man. Boulder is one of my favorite cities of all time. So good call there. Favorite band or artist. That is so hard, and uh, and it's it's genre specific. Well, we got we have ACL we have ACL coming to Austin, you know, in a week or so here. So, are there any artists maybe at ACL that you're you're paying attention to? You, you know, I actually have not had a chance to look at the lineup, but um, growing a company, people, he's growing. You can't even see that Miley that Miley Cyrus is coming to Austin. Yeah, I, I will. Phoebe Bridgers. All right. Um, <laughs> Look, so in my guitar days, it was, you know, Joe Satriani, um, he's a shredder, you know, I love Southern rock. So, you know, Almond Brothers uh, are, are, are my guys. Um, I love jazz. So Miles Davis and John Coltrane. Classics. This could get, we could, we could talk, this could be a a two hour podcast. Okay. Yeah. Let's do a part two on, on, on music. Cause I, I I go deep down that game as well. And for the folks who are listening and not watching on the, on the video, Dave's got two, two guitars on the wall, but don't be fooled. He actually has another 10 on the floor right by him. So he's a, a music nerd too. Uh, Dave, last question, best advice for a first time CEO. Uh, I'm going to give two pieces of advice. One is, and I know it doesn't work out for everybody this way, but if you can, as you mentioned, a, a startup is a living, breathing entity, and it's a journey. And there are good moments and bad moments, good days and bad days. If you're in that that you know, that bunker with someone else as a co-founder, it just it that's invaluable. So that's advice. Piece of advice one. Piece of advice two is whether you have a co-founder or not. And this is, I think, career in in general, whether you're you know entry level employee or first time CEO slash founder. 
you, you got to have a or multiple mentors and you have to invest in those relationships. The difference in people's careers that I've seen um, when they have had mentors versus when they don't have mentors, it's night and day difference. I, I, I would love to do that, that formal study and see you know, uh, professionals' um, trajectory um, post and, and pre-quality mentor. Mm, love that. Love that answer. It's so important. Dave, thanks again. Such a great conversation, man. Loved it. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.